Bay 40 here. I mean, I come to you from a place just bathed in love. All right? I, I spent all day with, with people I love and who love me. All right? I haven't been live streaming so much because I just love my life, love the, the people that I'm spending time with. And uh, you produce very different live streams. You produce very different blog posts. You produce different books and novels, right, when you have love in your life. So I haven't always had an excess of, of love in my life. And so I've been at times quite cranky, quite weird, quite, you know, attention getting, uh, quite, quite cruel, you know, quite uh, maladapted to reality. And it still hits me. Like at uh, 11 o'clock last night, I, I woke up. And I was just steaming mad, right? Just a minor interaction earlier in the day. I, I had experienced it as an attack on my dignity. I had experienced it as humiliating and demeaning and infuriating. And I just couldn't get back to sleep. I was like triggered, right? So I, I still get triggered plenty, plenty of times. But, you know, I knew it would pass and eventually, you know, work the problem out. But it's interesting to just kind of be aware of like what exactly you know triggers you because for me the, the thing that i consistently find the most triggering is and this is going to sound really ridiculous but any threat to my status i consistently <laughs> find the most 40 like what the hell man i mean what what status do you have like how, how could anyone threaten you've got you know one viewer right now how how could you know anyone threaten right but that's just how it is man when, when people treat me like i'm stupid or i feel like they're not living up to an agreement or it's just kind of demeaning man i, I get triggered and my, my resentment comes out and i don't know i guess i'm that that angry you know kid who was in foster care for a few years and and just like Looking at the outside world as the enemy to debunk. And it's like, oh, F, you know, da-da-da-da-da. I don't need anyone, all right? <laughs> I can just, I can just, you know, do my own thing. But what do you think? A whole lot of live streamers, tell me if I'm wrong, a whole lot of live streamers don't have any loving face-to-face -face interaction with people, you know, prior to going on stream. In fact, many of us, I don't think we would be we would be streaming nearly as much if we had love in our life, right? I, I, I've got love in my life. I'm not streaming so much, all right? Look, you should do streams reacting to your old streams, spring 2018, five years later. Yeah, so another reason I haven't been streaming much is that I've been digging up my, my old streams and, uh, you know, finding them, uploading them to Rumble, to Odyssey, and even a few on YouTube. But if you want to find most of them, they are on Rumble. And quite a lot of them are on Odyssey. Some of them are on BitChute. Very few of them are on, are on YouTube, unfortunately. But I found <laughs> two streams that caused certain people to go mental. But I simply compared just the most innocent, innocent thing you can imagine. All right. What could be more innocent? What could be more loving? All right. What could be more adaptive and pro-social than to simply have an honest, you know, free-flowing, open exchange comparing the the, uh, the 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 biological centric worldview of you know a certain uh, certain European political ideology of the 1930s into the 40s and the theocentric worldview of the Torah like what could be more innocent 
what could be more powerful? Right? What could be more elevating? What could be more clarifying? What could be more inspiring? What could you know better help someone lead a better and more productive life than simply you know a fair-minded, intellectual, you know, public-spirited, clarity-seeking comparison of the the text of the Torah and Mein Kampf? I mean, what what on earth? Like, how could anyone go wrong doing you know these sort of discussions? Like, what's the problem here? Like to me, it just seems like the the healthiest comparison possible. Like the the biological centric, you know, worldview that the that the Nazis had, for example, that that got its, uh, you know, it, its wellspring from nature. That nature was the you know ultimate, ultimate reality, and that you know whatever leads to survival, you know whatever leads to thriving of your particular people, that that is what's good, right? I mean. It, that just seems completely innocent to me, and yet all sorts of people just totally like. And Why did that forward, happen? I want to continue on with our crowd-pleasing series on uh, comparing Torah with Mein Kampf, uh, Judaism with Nazism. Where do they differ? Do they have anything in common? And uh, once again, I have to give the all. So it sounds like nuts to think that you know these two antitheses could have anything in common, but they are both ideologies of in-groups. So everything, you can find things that it has in common. Like you can find things that America and Venezuela have in common. They're both in the Americas. And then you can find 87 things that they are different. You can think of things that you and I have in common. You know, 76 things that ways that we're different. Right? So just because you point out that there are, say, some similarities between uh, the state of Alaska and uh, Indonesia, right, doesn't mean that these two places are very similar. It's just you talking about comparison and distinction right six digit test so unless you can recite these six digits backwards you shouldn't be in here because i'm gonna be dropping some major red pills and i don't want to blow your mind so you see there's there's ads where they say that this is for professional drivers only do not attempt so the idea is that i'm dropping in here therefore uh, high iq types only this is a... yeah i should institute a six digit reverse you know test all right here, here are the digits if you can't recite these backwards you do not belong here okay one eight five six nine right if you can't recite those digits backwards smoothly and calmly you do not belong in here you shouldn't be here like go watch fox news stream of love and inclusion but only for people with iqs over 115 so six numbers for today and i'm only going to say them once then you need to repeat them backwards three nine two five six one okay that's it now you need to repeat them backwards that shows that you have a minimum IQ or 115, and that's what you need to be able to handle these ideas so you don't go insane. I don't want to be responsible for you. Uh... Yeah, there, there's something dark about this this comparison. Yeah, there's there's a lot of darkness in the world, and you know maybe some people can't handle looking at uh, darkness. All right, not everyone's cut out to be a policeman. Not everyone's cut out to be a social worker. Not everyone's cut out to be a family law attorney. Not everyone's cut out to be a professional athlete. Right, you know, a lot of life is absolutely brutal, and harsh, and, and dark. So, as an Orthodox Jew, do I eat gefilte fish? I do not eat any fish of any kind. Never have, and unfortunately, never will. I think fish is fish are healthy. I think fish are good for you. I think it's a major shortcoming on my part that I am still so stuck in you know the patterns of my childhood, right? That I still haven't been able to muster the ability to 
eat uh, eat fish and to eat meat. Luckily, I've got my beef organ capsule since I started taking them two years ago. I feel strong. Did a bunch of pull-ups the night before the show. Losing your mind and doing anything self-destructive. Okay, hey, Bernard's in the chat room. So, B, oh, Degenerate's in here, excellent. Degenerate, <laughs> you belong, man. This is a safe space for you. Okay, you are in the circle of trust. So, start off with the messianic vision as articulated in Isaiah chapter two, is that all the peoples of the world will say, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. That the Torah will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And God will judge between the nations. He will settle the disputes. So guess what? I think every people dreams that eventually all other people will recognize that they're the best, that they possess the ultimate truth about life, that they are the, the chosen ones of the, of the universe, right? Uh, so this uh, vision from Isaiah, all right, I think pretty much everyone has it. I, I think uh, Mesoamerican tribes have it. I think uh, Muslims have it, Christians have it, uh, atheists have it, Japanese have it. Like everyone thinks that they are the center of the earth. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up swords. Right. Everyone wants peace, right? On our terms, right? Whatever the terms are for the flourishing of, of your in-group. Everyone wants peace and recognition that their in-group is really the most profound, the most cutting edge, the most important. All right. So this this messianic vision of Isaiah, I think, is also a pretty universal vision. Sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Okay. That's the Jewish messianic vision. But it's very removed from the world that we see around us. So the, the Mein Kampf worldview, which there's no important differences between that and the old right worldview is that uh, the world is dog eat dog. You either conquer or you'll be conquered. But, uh... And and maybe both are, are true, right? Much of the world is dog eat dog, but there is a tremendous amount to be gained from cooperation, working together. So particularly in, in very dangerous situations, right? Having a strong in-group preference is probably adaptive. Right, in relatively safe and prosperous environments, having a strong in-group identity is probably maladaptive. Right? So the very same tendencies, the very same allegiances that are adaptive in one circumstance become maladaptive in another circumstance. I, I'm sure there are a lot of like harsh situations where having a strong religious faith is highly adaptive. In other situations, having a strong religious faith, which will invariably go with a strong in-group identity, in a multicultural world, it may not be as adaptive. So I'm, I'm right-wing, or my political tendencies are right-wing. In particularly dangerous times, right, people are more likely to vote for the right-wing. Right? In less dangerous times, Right, more innovative, egalitarian, democratic solutions coming from the left may well be more adaptive. You cannot flout nature's rules and hope to succeed. That there are certain immutable iron rules that, that run the universe. They are natural, they are, they are biocentric, such as you don't find in nature two subspecies living in the same area. Like you, you won't find two types of pond scum in the same pond. Eventually, one type of pond scum will wipe out the other type of pond scum. So I think that is, is true. But that doesn't necessarily mean that more adapted species, more intelligent species have to, you know, take, oh, well, if pond scum wipe out, you know, subspecies of pond scum, then we need to do the same thing. All right. I don't think that's true. I don't think that needs to be true. I don't think we need to take our morality from nature. At the same time, to set up a system of morality that ignores what's going on in nature that ignores, you know, basic evolutionarily developed tendencies. I don't think that, you know, I don't think that's a, a winning formula 
in general, maybe for individuals. What are my top five streams of all time? I don't know. Don't know. But I am compiling a list of my favorite favorite streams. So it's on lukeford.net. Just click highlights. So I'm, comp I'm compiling a list of my favorite streams and my favorite blog posts. And the chat says, 40, you could use an AI version of yourself that just does your podcast when you don't feel up to it. <laughs> we need some classic Dennis Dale Torah shows. <laughs> What kind of mic was I using back then? Um, the Bluebell? It's, uh, it's a little dusty. Oh, man, let me. Uh, it's way too dusty. So if I ever have a guest over and I kind of want to sabotage their performance, I'll just... Uh, Set him up with this dildo-looking mic, God forbid. Uh, blue, it's a blue, blue Yeti. Yeah, this is what, what I was using back in the day, man. And this is, this is before I had the voice lessons, bro. So this is when I still spoke in a monotone. But can you imagine I was using this old thing? Damn. And, and it also applies in, in the rest of nature. You don't, you don't find two subspecies just living in peace together in the same geographic location. Right, but that doesn't mean people can't, all right? And it, it, you do find cooperation in nature, right? Different species, you know, frequently cooperate. So this is a, this is a very narrow uh, perspective on the, the nature dynamic. All right, Forty, how did you come to your nuanced worldview? Who influenced me to a more nuanced worldview? I, I think the number one thing that brought me to a nuanced worldview is just humiliation. Just humiliation after humiliation after humiliation after humiliation. So I'm thinking about one very, very painful humiliation. So I was making an L.A. friend, right? You know, friend in L.A. is probably a looser term than you know friends in like uh, you know other places but i was making an la friend just a great guy you know a graduate of three elite universities someone who's earning over a million dollars a year you know someone who knew everybody who, who mattered in la and this person was kind to me this person enjoyed me you know we had a you know a, a great acquaintanceship you know even verging on, on friendship there was nothing that i enjoyed more in my entire life than talking to this man. Nothing. But I fell into my habit of saying inappropriate things and I would see that I would offend him and I just ignored it because I so just wanted to say what I wanted to say and make the jokes that I wanted to make. And then one day he just exploded at me in front of people important to me and just rip me to shreds and then I ripped him back and we basically haven't spoken since I mean I just tore up the you know, most important relationship in my life <laughs> I mean I was not in his I was not in his top 50 relationships but I just so enjoyed you know hanging out talking schmoozing with this guy and I blew it up because I just didn't pay any attention to his signals that he found, you know, some of my jokes offensive. 
and I, I just blew it up. And like those kind of humiliations, I think, uh, driven me to a more uh, nuanced worldview. Also, because I put you know so many of my ideas and perspectives and, and debates and podcasts and videos and blog posts and, and books, you know, put so much of myself online. I don't enjoy being humiliated. Like when what I say, uh, what I do online is then critiqued and caricatured and debunked. And or, or when I look back at it, you know, two years later, five, 10, 20 years later, it's like, oh, that's so embarrassing. I don't like being embarrassed. I don't like being humiliated. I don't like feeling like a total idiot. And so I found that one of the best ways to reduce your chances of being completely humiliated, you know, blowing up important relationships, you know, destroying your life prospects. Like, I have no idea how much my online activities have cost me. Right? I don't have no idea, you know, how many, you know, women I, I didn't get to date and mate and you know have a relationship with and possibly marry because of the things I've you know said online. You know, I have no idea the friends that I've missed out on, the sense of community that I missed out on, the you know business opportunities that I missed out on because of you know the crazy things that I say online. But as a result of you know the the just the the waterfall of humiliation that has kind of accompanied me over the the course of my life, it, it's made me want to become more. What's that? Not robust, but um, uh, when you're strong and can you can you know bend with the with the wind and bend with circumstances, bend but not break. Anti-fragile. Like I wanted to become more anti-fragile. You know, I want to reduce the amount of times I gratuitously, needlessly make a complete tosser of myself. Uh, I think twelve step has helped because I'm still engaged in a very lengthy project of cleaning out the wreckage of my past uh, the people that i've done you know needless harm to i've been just needlessly cruel and so wanting to reduce the amount of times that i have to go make amends to someone <sighs> i don't like having to make amends <sighs> uh, also i'd say that uh, the the book virtually you the dangerous powers of the e-personality had a very profound effect on me because I, I, it was very clear to me how you know, my e-personality had created a lot of trouble in my life. And it was a major reason why you know, certainly very esteemable people called me toxic. I didn't like that. 12-step uh, helped me, I think, you know, kind of calm down. And when you calm down, ah, yeah, so whatever I did to calm down. So let's just say that I've calmed down over the past 10 years. And maybe it's 10, 12 step work. Maybe it's uh, you know, 10 years of psychotherapy. Maybe it's you know, the Alexander technique. But when I calm down, I have less and less need for you to give me a thumb, thumbs up or for you to applaud me or for you to you know, support me in any way or press like or you know, view, view the stream. So when I have less need for attention, right? When you when I calm down, I have less need for attention. When I have less need for attention, I make better choices, right? If I'm calm, I have less need to debunk the outside world, to treat the outside world as the enemy. I, I have less need to to show off. I have less need to to 
you know, get revenge against my enemies. I have less need to, you know, show people who disrespected me how amazing I am. So I, I can come to you right now from a day filled with love, with, with shared vulnerability, with honesty, with, with openness, with, with connection. And I'm going to go out from here to bathe in another river of love, honesty, connection. And that calms you down. It makes it easier for me to see where I was wrong. So one character trait that I, I may have, my father said this, and my father didn't necessarily overflow with compliments about me. My father said that I was more willing to admit that I was wrong than anyone he knew. And so also I'd say reading widely and that having less of an emotional need to, to show that I was wrong, that I was right, and, and it was making it you know less and less effortful to admit you know, admit that I was wrong or that I have, you know, room to grow in an area that, that helped make things more nuanced. I would say moving from, I would say 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago, I was like 80% internally, externally validated, right? 80% of the meaning satisfaction that I got from what I was doing online came from external validation, you know, compliments, feedback, uh, viewership, readership, et cetera, like that. Now I would say it's 80% internally validated. If I feel good, if I feel proud, if I'm, you know, standing behind what I say, then I don't need, I don't have the desperate need for, you know, other people to buck me up. So right now I'm speaking of four people live on, <laughs> on YouTube and it's okay because I'm internally validated. This is just a little bit of fun to uh, try to try to work out some ideas as we, we head into the Shabbat just, you know, share the love, share the joy that uh, I've gotten to, to experience in my life. Yeah, reality always wins if you're at all sane, right? If there's anything about you that's sane, you're going to embrace reality. Okay. Elliot Blatt, speaking of sanity, what's going down, bro? Blessings, bro. Oh, I thought you'd given up streaming. Um, yeah, lots going on, Luke. Lots going on. I, I got to relay a story, though. I mean, you, I mean, if you're feeling down on yourself, no, it's not clear that you are. Okay. okay. So, you know, I've, I've mentioned, I've talked to you in the past about this friend of mine who's an alcoholic. Yeah. Right. And so a couple of weeks ago, he checked himself into rehab because he felt he had no hope. You know, so he's since moved back to Vermont. So this is taking place in Vermont. And, you know, he went, you know, he checked himself in and he was incommunicado for a week. And then he sort of became communicado again. And then he's talking about his plight and how he had no energy, couldn't get up, you know, couldn't get out of bed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's depressed. And so I sort of offhandedly said, well, have you tried modafinil? <laughs> <laughs> Very offhandedly, right? You know, like uh, not expecting to be taken seriously, right? And, you know, but he, he takes what I say seriously. You know, I've known him for 30 plus years, you know, so... Um, and so a week goes by and then he calls me back and he's like, you know what? I got the nurse to get me a prescription for <laughs> and I feel great. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he checked himself out and, you know, I don't think he stopped drinking, but he's at least you know, <laughs> out and about and, uh, you know, he's off the mat as it were. So <clears throat> I think you could, uh, you take a little, you know, his recovery or his, his steps towards recovery, you know, he, he can attribute to you, Luke. So, 
Yeah, but put that in your ledger. Put that in the old ledger. Yeah, yeah, but it, I mean, it probably would have been better for him to stay in rehab. So, Modafinil is a powerful weapon, but uh, bro, if it's if it's misused, I mean, not not everyone can handle their Modafinil. Um. Well, you know, I can connect you to if you want. Um, but I do want to get your um. So. He's in Vermont, which is kind of a semi-socialist state. And so he got his first prescription of modafinil for uh, a dollar. But sort of the retail price, the sort of, you know, the over-the-counter price is like 800 bucks a month. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. yeah. So then I, I remember you. Yeah, yeah, I definitely, I mean, it's illegal to buy modafinil overseas from even very reputable places like rxshop.com. MD. I definitely cannot recommend that anyone, you know, breaks the law by importing modafinil from India on sites like RX Shop MD. I mean, God forbid. So what, are, what people... you're saying is, whatever I do, I should not recommend that he go to RX Shop MD. Definitely not. Do, do not. Do not go to. Do RX... not do that. Do not do, do not. that. You don't even consider it. Yeah, don't, don't 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 even consider it because. Like if you order from there, there's probably like a, a one in ten, one in twenty chance that customs confiscates your package, and mm. you know what happens then? The RX Shop ND sends you another package at no extra price. Oh my so, God, that's just, that's the thing worse than death. It's like facilitating bad behavior, and it, it's crazy. Like some people buy their pharmaceuticals from places like RX Shop MD because they find that there's no qualitative difference between what they get from RX Shop MD versus paying $20 a pill, you know, for, you know, over the counter at an American pharmacy. The bastards. Bastards definitely don't go to Don't do that. Like RX Shop. All right, I definitely MD. will not recommend that he go to RX Shop MD. I, that's no. the last no. thing I'm going to do. No. Okay, I'm glad no. we cleared that up. Yeah, yeah, people could go wrong and I'd hate to have yeah. that on my conscience. Yeah, yeah, good. Um, so, so that's sort of like a, you know, I'd call that a, a win for the stream, as it were, uh, for the broader Luke community. Um, so, uh, so let's see the other story. So, um, I started using the app. You have an iPhone, right? It has yes. that fitness tracker. Yes. Do you do you, do you use that fitness tracker? Yes. Yes. Okay, so I started using it. I scoffed at it early on. I just didn't like it. But amazingly, I sort of allowed myself to be suckered in to using it. And um, it really is an incentive. It actually kind of works. Yeah, it does, you know? doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I did like uh, nine miles today walking. Wow, um, that's great. Yeah, which is pretty solid, you know. And... Um, so I'm going to keep that going. I'd recommend anyone interested to, to check it out. Anyway, um, the other, so that was topic number two. Topic number three. So you've been following Ralph's redemption arc? No, I have not. Well, um, from what it appears, he's kicked the drugs, and he's on a serious weight loss um, campaign. Oh, and, and it does seem sincere, and uh, his voice seems different. His demeanor seems different. 
Uh, now I caught this because Stephen J. James did a a video um, talking about what he knows about weight loss, and uh, he had some insightful things to say. But um, it was really heartening to see, you know, that you know that that uh, people can turn their lives around, and he seems to be doing it. So wow. So yeah. So I figured, well, if Ralph can do it, I can do it. You know. So I'm really on. I'm really. This is the summer of weight loss for me. I'm. I'm really going all out. And huh. uh, how much do you want to lose? How much do you want to lose? Minimum twenty, but I think thirty is probably what I really want to lose. Which seems like a very seems like a, 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 a seems like a tall ask um, at my age. Uh, but I think it's. I think it's an outside possibility. You know what I want. You know what I what want. What do you want? For you? This, this is what I want, and this is what I want for you too. I Tell want to feel good about every thing I do today. So, so after I got over my rage and resentment, and and managed to fall back to sleep around three a.m. You know, after I got up at about five thirty a.m. Uh, aside from one. One mistake that I made, no, two, two or three mistakes, three mistakes or, or related that, that I made this afternoon. Aside from that, I feel good about everything I've done today. Like, that's my goal. Like, I want to feel, you know, behind, you know, supporting, you know, feeling good about every single thing I do in the day. That's my, that's my goal. That's my dream. Like, to have everything working together. So I don't want my streaming life, for example, I don't want that kneecapping my social life or my religious life or my work life all right i i don't want what i eat to be against my best interests i don't want my exercise or lack thereof or too much to be against my best interests i don't want the things i say either on stream off stream for, for laughs for serious you know for, for, for money for for love for, uh, like i wanted everything working together that's my goal you know religion community Society, friends, you know, walking down the street, getting on the bus, you know, walking into a kosher restaurant, doing a live stream, uh, reading a book, eating a snack. If I get up at 2 a.m. or 4 a.m. or whatever it is, I want it all to work t together. I don't want to have swaths of my life that consistently through the day that I regret. That's that's my that's my dream. That's and that's what I aim for. That's what I hope for. What do you think? I think it's marvelous. I think I think I think I see that. I think I I see the world similarly. I think that's how I approach life now. Um, you don't want you want to sort of go to bed with like no regrets. Oh yeah, a minimum, minimum. You you want to like particularly early in the day. Like if you if you can get off to a great start, I mean, mm -hmm. I mean that's fantastic because I you know I let myself off the hook after you know five p.m. or six p.m. Because I'm typically getting up at 4 a.m. or so, so I, you know, if I just want to Netflix out after 6 6 p.m., that that's fine. Um, but particularly early in the day. But I I don't want to regret things I say, you know, in business. I don't want to regret things I say at shul. I don't want to regret things I say on a live stream. I don't want to regret things that I eat. I don't want to. I don't want to regret. You know, as, I want as few regrets. I want it working together, right? I, I don't want to be at war with myself. You know, I don't want to be, I've got so much self-hatred just under the surface that I don't want it to, 
to you know erupt. Yeah, I don't understand self hatred. Really, um, I understand regret. Mm-hmm. Maybe if we use it, if that's what you mean by self hatred, um, but like hate, like I don't know, self hatred. You like get up and you look at Luke and you say, "I hate thee." You look well, at Luke. I looked in the in the mirror this, this afternoon and I said, "You stupid mother effer!" And I just went off for like two minutes, just cussing myself out. Uh, well, there's a, I think like from like when I was there's like in in Zen Buddhism they said it's the people that are self-critical that don't need to be self-critical. The people that aren't self-critical are the people that need to be self-critical. So you're holding yourself to really high standards and you feel like um, you could meet higher standards. So that's, Mm. you know what I mean? That's a really nice way of phrasing it. But uh, I remember a few months ago, I I really, tell me if I said the story, you know, I really offended two women when uh, Mm -hmm. they were just schmoozing with me. And one was saying, you know, oh, you know, I I was so good at basketball. I played with the boys. And I responded, oh, I played with the boys, too, until the police picked me up. They were, like, horrified and offended, and basically that was it. They wouldn't, you know, they were not interested in talking to me again. And so I've made those kind of dark jokes at the wrong times for the wrong people hundreds and hundreds of times in my life. And so when I do it again, it's, like, a really sick feeling. It's a really sick feeling. Uh... And that, then, I, yeah, I feel a little self-hatred. It's like, F you, 40. You know, I go about, you know, okay, you know, I sort of been in similar situations where, and particularly with women, where you make jokes, right? right? And you sort of expect them to be appreciated. And they're not only not appreciated, they're horrified. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I mean, you'd rather people not be horrified. At the same time, you'd rather they could actually appreciate the joke. So is it really your fault that they couldn't? Depends if the joke was actually good or not. But if you let, if you, if you offer to the world as a love offering, a great <laughs> dark twisted joke, and these women don't understand it, is it really your problem? Yeah, my my approach is yeah. If you're if you're offending people, you're hurting people. You know unnecessarily. Like you know there, there are times and places where it's okay to offend people for some higher good. But just for just for, for making a joke that people don't enjoy, um, particularly in a professional setting, <laughs> not not a great idea. Well, Luke, but we're both old enough to remember, right, the pre-woke era where the workplace was nothing but raunchy jokes. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a yeah. free for all, yeah, and it was fun, yeah, right, yeah, and suddenly those jokes became offensive, yeah. So you know, are you blaming yourself for something that you need not blame yourself for? I mean, the fun we used to have and the jokes. I mean, everything was a double. I'm thinking it's one particular yeah. workplace when I was young. It was so much fun. Is that a, the I walked theater? to work with this. 
Is that huh? the Paul now, Theater? This is, I worked at a film lab, so this is after the theater. This isn't you so, mopping up the splooge. No, this is post-splooge mop-up. Yes, this is... Uh, so I graduated from like $7 an hour to $9 an hour. So this is working at a, at a film lab. So in the old days, prior to the digital everything, you would, there was one film to tape transfer lab in San Francisco. So if you were shooting what we're called a film, so we used to get a lot of Lucas's films. Lucas was based up here. So what are called dailies, right? And then all the things that were shot in 35 millimeter then transferred to videotape to be edited right so that's where i worked this 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 place which is now closed no longer exists because everything's done directly on digital uh but yeah it was a lab it was a film lab and a film tape transfer uh facility okay worked there for about like a year and a half maybe two years and boy was it fun I, everybody there was like sort of an aspiring sort of filmmaker actor you know everybody kind of wanted to be in the show business but they didn't quite get there, but they were still really funny people nonetheless, you know, and it was so, you know, these guys, they were just so funny, like from, you know, from head to tail, you know, <laughs> I used to walk to work, you know, with a skip in my step knowing that it would just be a lot of fun working there, you know, and this, and then, you know, shortly after two or three years, four or five years later, this woke stuff started happening, but I, I don't think you can take people's offense necessarily as you having committed a crime now you could gauge you could gauge your shots you know you could you could probably read the room better maybe here and there but i just don't think i would beat myself up over that uh it's a sick feeling when you unnecessarily alienate people particularly when they have the ability to hurt you (laughs) true so you're but you're So you're sort of measuring yourself against your goals within that community. And that's well, why it's a feeling. I'm measuring my sense against the goal about feeling good as I go through the day. Now, there would be plenty of people in my life who would be absolutely appropriate to tell that joke to. right? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, when two people who are important to me are offended and, yeah. and have completely changed their perspective on me from having quite positive perspective on me to a very negative perspective on me and then telling other people about the horrible thing that I said and then there you know wider repercussions as the ripples just keep moving out 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 um, it's not a good feeling particularly when there are plenty of people that I can tell the tasteless things to mm-hmm. like, well, I think why that's why you stream you you, yeah, you need this outlet. Yeah. <laughs> you need that outlet. <laughs> no. Uh, all right. Well, you know, I, I can't tell you what's best for you, but like, um, I, I, it, there was a time, you know, once in, you know where what you did was probably very innocuous, or is not considered offensive, and you how you. And the only reason you have these bad feelings is because other people react to them. They weren't objectively wrong. Well, I just want to go on the basis of reality and what works and what doesn't work. I mean, I so you're talking about principles and I'm talking about interests. And so I want to I want to take an interest in my own best interests. Hmm. 
right? You're talking about principles, you know, people shouldn't be offended, you know, that there should be more robust speech allowed and social engagements, people shouldn't be so touchy. And But maybe I, that's your role, Luke. Maybe that's your role to be the one that sort of, maybe you're the court jester, Luke, like it or not. And you're you're yeah. supposed to play that role in a community. Yeah, no, I, right? I think I, I think you're right. I'm like um I'm like Israel's suffering servant. I mean, for 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 their sins, right, I am afflicted. Right? You know, I yeah. am scourged for their oversensitivity. You know, I am Right. You have to take these beatings, right? Yeah. yeah this is this is you're doing a service for them yeah you don't have to you don't have to internalize the meaning of the beatings you just have to know that you have to like endure these beatings because they can't handle what you're trying to bring forward so you yeah. have to be right right so I mean, it's like you didn't do nothing bro you didn't do nothing i mean there's, there's i've got nothing that people should look at me and you know take pleasure in my looks but you know i'm despised and abandoned by by women, you know, I'm a man of great pain. I'm familiar with illness, and I'm one from whom people literally hide their faces. Like I am despised. I mean, and it is their sickness that I am carrying. It is their pain that I carry. Yet people assume that I've been afflicted, that I've been struck down by God, that I've been socially humiliated, that I've been pierced, that I've been beaten, I've been rubbed and denigrated and degraded for my offenses, as though it was my wrongdoings, and it was the punishment for their sins have been laid upon me, and and by my wounds are they healed, because all of them, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of them has turned to his own way. But for some reason, God has caused the wrongdoing of all these losers to fall on me. Like, I am oppressed. I am afflicted. Yet do I open my mouth like a lamb to the slaughter? I am like a sheep that is silent before his shearers. And I don't open my mouth. You know, oppression and judgment take me away. Like, I am cut off from the land of the living, right? For the wrongdoing of the goyim, right? All right, I, I receive the blows. But I, I don't know. I really touched the nerve. I'm just touching nerves. Wow. Uh, wow, bro. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta let that sink in. <laughs> so, what about Chuck Johnson? Are you still a fan of Chuck Johnson? Well, I was fan. I don't think it was ever the, the right word. I, I give him his due that he says some interesting things, and mm. I also give him the due that he says a lot of you know ridiculous things. And so, you know, uh, what do you think? Well, I caught a stream with him about a week ago, and it was very amusing. So it was Chuck's Johnson stream himself. So at one point, he had Richard Spencer on, and then he dropped off. And at another point, Laura Loomer came on the stream, right? Mm -hmm. And then, and then he was perfectly cordial and amicable with her, you know. And then, you know, she basically hates DeSantis and loves Trump. Yeah. Chuck Johnson hates DeSantis. Everybody hates DeSantis for some reason. I, I I don't have an opinion one way or another. But the only two... So, Loomer and Johnson were very pro-Trumpers back in the 2016, right? Yeah. And then uh, Chuck seems to have turned on Trump, but Loomer has been steadfast in her support. So, they were, they were cutting it up. They were, you know seemed to uh, not discuss Trump. That was the third rail, but they did both hate Santos, so there was some common ground. And so they talked for a while, then Loomer finally dropped. 
And then Richard came on, you know, and like and Richard hates DeSantis for some other reason. And uh, I just but there's no love between, you know, it's like this idea of idea clusters where this is what Paul Gottfried once, I think this is, you can attribute to Paul Gottfried, this idea that certain ideas sort of cluster together, like anti-vax with conservatism, with um, those things all sort of oscillate, you know, they all sort of cluster together. And so the conservative thing is one set of idea clusters. And then the liberal thing is quite another, it's egalitarianism, it's all this other stuff, and those ideas cluster together. And so if one idea from one camp goes into the other idea of the other camp, you know, it's seen as a violation. So um, it's pretty amusing. But, you know, Chuck Johnson did reveal some stuff about uh, his childhood. There perhaps was some sort of sexual abuse. And I, I do think that that sort of informs his kind of his conspiratorial bent because he's incredibly conspiratorial. It's just more for my, it's just too much for my taste. But I do like listening to him. Yeah. Yeah. Time. I mean, I would say that you know, if, if you can stomach getting one valuable insight for nine trash insights, then you're not going to be disappointed, right? He, he's going to do better than 10%. Yeah, but he, he may not do better than twenty percent. Yeah, it's just a, it's just just a weird way of going through life trying to ferret out information. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to, you know, you have to be a certain person at a certain time of your life where you're willing to, you know, you're willing to wade through all, all the BS for the for the under news that you don't get else anywhere else like there are insights that chuck johnson brings there's information he brings that you can't get anywhere else that's true that's true well that's probably about all i got bro i think we're caught up okay blessings bro <laughs> all okay. right blessings okay all right, sure. all right, take care. All right this Bye. is uh quarter talking with mickey Kals. it was popular i mean that's the weirdest thing about the dobbs decision it was liberals who thought <laughs> their their um, legalized abortion would not be popular with voters. And since Dobbs was overturned, I mean, a little bit to my dismay, I got to say, I'm a pro-lifer, but it's been put to the voters over and over again, and liberals ought to be very happy with that. But they never believed it. That's why they needed Roe v. Wade. Well, there, there is a point with both the ties, both the administrative agencies and the Supreme Court together, which you just made, which is, uh, with with the overturning of Roe and Dobbs, democracy is working. I'm not a pro-lifer. I like the way it's working. The Republicans are moderating their position awfully fast, you know, in the historical context. But they're 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 honing in on 15 weeks, 12 week bans, mm-hmm. uh, not total bans, exceptions. Yeah, whatever you guys want. And <laughs> and they're 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 vowing to make incremental progress in the future. Good luck with that. And uh, but uh, but so. The the Republican position was pro-democracy and democracy worked. The Democratic position is anti-democracy. Let's have the agencies do it. Let's have the courts do it. And that's been proven not to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, it didn't work with Roe because Roe was unpopular. Roe gave. That's a fantastic point there by Mickey Kaus, right? It's good for democracy that Roe v. Wade is overturned. And, and the Democrats wanted to rule through you know, judicial fiat. And it's much better for our country if these things are voted on, even if that's good for Democrats and bad for Republicans. Birth to the pro-life movement. 
Yes. Uh, road didn't road didn't stick. You know, uh, so uh, maybe you don't go through the course next time. Right, right. L liberal ideas might. That's a great point. Be more popular than either they or I think they are. Uh, an another thing, um, DeSantis talked about, uh, which you really have have to look up. And I mean, I guess everyone is going to be hearing this, but it made me think I, I can't wait for the debates was David Sachs ac asked him, this was just toward the end before I thought, okay, I, I give up on this cutting in and out, um, ask him about the Disney fight. And, you know, as with, as with MSNBC spending all of, and, and I think maybe, I don't know if CNN did it, spending all of 2020 and 2021 calling him, Governor Death Santis, and then it turns out his COVID policies saved more lives and saved businesses and saved little kids from from becoming retarded when they couldn't get enough oxygen through their masks. Um, once he's allowed to explain things, I mean, this Disney hysteria, one thing I wanted to tell you about the Disney hysteria, because you know how much I love making fun of um, GOP donors. Um, many of whom are among my acquaintance. And I've noticed that the big donor types, <laughs> they, they say, they raise the Disney thing and say, you know, he's not pro-corporation. <laughs> this is, it's corporate welfare, you idiots. <laughs> if that's what they want, I mean, man, they got to get out more. They got to talk to some blue collar workers. What, what was his explanation for Disney? Because, I mean, I can come up with one, but he well, could probably come up with a better one. Yeah, no, he just, he, he, he explained that, um, he explained the whole um, little kids being taught about being told at age four, uh, um, oh, you can choose your own gender, and uh, being shown very explicit uh, sexual sexual material so explicit that as he points out when he simply showed the material they were removing from public schools on the 6 p.m news the 6 p.m news local news of course no one else none of the national media covered local news had to cut away from it because it was inappropriate <laughs> to run on local tv that's how disgusting it is and he said look parents are complaining if parents want to talk to their own kids about about pronouns and changing your gender they're they're perfectly free to but but Let's stick to the basics of of teaching them stuff. And and also, by the way, any time spent on talking about pronouns um, and you can change your gender is not spent teaching them stuff they need to know. Um, so we said, th this is what we do. And, and Disney has been becoming more and more woke. And um, they're very powerful in the state of Florida. And they've been throwing their weight around. And when and they came out very heavily on the other side of this. Uh, and and talks about their programming that has become extremely woke. And he said, "Look, they have benefits that that other gigantic amusement parks in Florida don't have. Universal doesn't have it, and uh, SeaWorld doesn't have it. Um, so, yeah, we we voted to take it away from them, and it's been extremely popular." The, the um. Uh the the analogy that, that that I came up with that worked for me is suppose Disney were a mining company and it dominated the politics of the state the way mining companies um, often dominated the politics of say western states and it had fought you know every safety regulation every environmental regulation 
And it was very effective. And a new governor came in and said, I want to regulate you for safety. And if you lobby against it, I'm going to fuck you every way I possibly can. <laughs> so I'm threatening you uh, the way politicians do. I'm going to take away whatever I can take away legitimately from you because you're throwing your weight around. And that's just democracy. That's the way democracy works. It's the opposite of log rolling. It's you trade. You agree not to oppose somebody's bill. They agree not to take it, you know, advantage of you. It's not retribution for speech any more than voting against somebody because you don't like what they say is retribution for speech. Disney's That's big claim point. is their, their First Amendment rights are being violated, and you can carry that principle so far that you don't have a democracy anymore because nobody can take anybody's ideas seriously because that would be violating their speech. Uh, so I just I, I I was hoping he made that argument that the throwing the weight around argument is the basic point. But, uh, you know, the the idea that you somebody lobbies against you, you can't lobby against them because that's retaliating is insane. That's another great point there by Mickey Kaus. Right. This is uh, Chris Kavanaugh from Decoding the Gurus. You know, nothing. Right. He's just a, like he's, he's like Dave Rubin esque, you know, not even that charismatic of a host. His content is relatively empty. And he turned down an offer for 50 million a year from the, the Daily Wire. Maybe it was 50 million over three years. Oh, yeah. So here he's talking about Stephen Crowder and uh, Dave Rubin and uh, right wing punditry. So uh, Chris Kavanaugh on, on the left from his fans and followers. I'm hoping the answer is no. Well, that, see, the, the thing is, I think that's a yeah, talking about will uh, Tucker Carlson succeed on Twitter? Plan. Like, I, I, I believe he's migrating, you know, like a whole production company and stuff. And, and it's oh. untested as a, a, like, to make Twitter the primary medium for that is, I think, untested. And I suspect okay. will go relatively badly. I, we'll, we'll see. Okay. But like, cause I, you know, people watch things on Twitter. Do people watch, like, 15 or 20-minute segments on Twitter? I, I, don't. I don't know. I don't think of Twitter as a place to watch videos. No, and, I'm not on there much anyway. I kind of pop in and read stuff and I get that's out. A, yeah, that's a good choice. But I, I do think that Tucker has such an inbuilt fan base that pretty much any platform he goes on, like you just have to factor into the Steven Crowder, who is an absolute, you know, nothing, right? He's just a, like, he's, he's like Dave Rubin-esque, you know, not even that charismatic of a host. His content is relatively empty. And he turned down an offer for 50 million a year from the, the Daily Wire, or maybe it was 50 million over three years. But that's the kind of money that is sloshing around and that he's much less famous than Tucker. And then, you know, like Matt Taibbi, Glenn Greenwald, all of them have huge incomes, like from their Substacks and their podcasts. Okay. So you absolutely can support yourself if you're a okay. uh, big enough figure. So Tucker, I think, is going to stick around, uh, where, uh, unfortunately. But, uh, but I don't know what's going to happen with the Twitter. Uh, Twitter as a platform okay. to host them. That seems like a bad okay. bet. You're talking about Substack. I just see somebody's asking about Glenn Lowry. I also think of him as a pundit. Yeah. He has a substack and he has a day job. That's the thing. Like some of these guys, eh, there's so many blurred lines. And I understand the difference between pundit and guru, I think. Mm. But someone's asking here about Glenn Lowry. Would you decode someone like him, Chris? Is yeah, he we, guru-y I, enough or is he just a pundit? I think one of the things is like Matt and I have a very low bar for considering someone like we don't because maybe initially we felt a bit worse if we were going to cover someone, right? Because we, but then whenever we so I can't speak too highly of the left-wing podcast decoding the gurus, but even if you're on the right, there's a lot of good stuff here. Uh, like kind of started using the grammar and thing. It felt more like we're saying, here's a template. How well do these people fit into it? And that means we can cover people that don't fit it, uh, you know, particularly well or fit it in some aspects and don't. So there's no real issue for us to cover people that don't fit the template. Um, but the, the main criteria is like, are they interesting or you know, is there something actually worth analyzing in their content? And in the case of pundits, polemical pundits, 
like, you know, the polemical playbook is pretty well established. So what would be interesting to us is if there's some aspect which is, you know, unique or unusual about the content. And with Glenn Lowry or John McWhorter or so on, there's various people that definitely think that they fit. Like uh, Aaron Rabinowitz is always going on about uh, John McWhorter. Um, but uh, so there would be no issue to cover them. But I, I think that they would fall closer to the like pundit end of the spectrum. It's just that they're a little bit more like libertarian in kind or heterodox pundits. Um, and that is what it it is like. So yeah, but yeah, like Coleman Hughes, Glenn Lowry, John McWhorter, there wouldn't be an issue to cover them. Um, but I, I just think in some respect, we might end up saying like, well, that's just their opinion a lot, right? Like, and we're not really trying to say. And that's not what Decoding the Gurus does. They don't get, oh, you know, they're wrong in their opinions. They decode how people, how pundits and gurus operate. They analyze their speech, their reasoning, their modus operandi. Hey, do we politically align with the people that we cover? Because in most occasions, the answer is not really. And it's not that interesting to know that like Matt and I don't share the political views of Dave Rubin, right? It's, just, it's not not mysterious. The one that I'm surprised about, Amber, that repeatedly surprised is like that my my political leaning, and I think Matt's as well, is like you know center left, moderate, normie, lefty type, right? Um, but people invariably seem very confused about this, and they they you know a bunch of people assume that we're extremely far left or something like that, or the uh, so I just always find that strange because like the very first episode, podcast, do they think that? Yeah, yeah, we get various feedback from people uh, that oh. like Ehler assumes as a default that uh, we're we're progressive and that we just misspoke <laughs> about something, no. or or the like the the last common one is like that we're actually you know uh, like right wing, but we're we're just very secretive. Oh, there's a price to pay for always being uh, sarcastic and and mocking and telling tall tales. So I gave someone a gift today, and they were so used to me being mocking, so used to me being sarcastic, so used to me, you know, I guess making fun of people and cutting people down that they thought I was running some kind of scam. And I was giving like a, a very generous gift, but <laughs> it, it's also interesting how, you know, everything's a Rorschach's test. So if someone gave you a very, you know, generous gift, would you immediately assume they're trying to screw you over? Like, would you immediately assume, hey, I'm not worthy? Or do you basically feel pretty good about yourself and someone gives you a generous gift and you go, oh, that's nice. You know, that's, that's, you know, that's lovely. Isn't life good? You know, I appreciate my friends. Uh, so some people, when you give them a gift, their immediate reaction is, you, you must be trying to screw me over. And another person's reaction is, you know, I've been hurt before, so I need to put up defenses. And another person is like afraid that, you really have given them a beautiful gift and they, you know, they're just getting overwhelmed by you know, vulnerability, possibly, you know, verging on, on tears that, you know, someone's being kind to them. Like other people have a lot of really bad experiences with men and they're so used to men screwing them over. They're so used to men lying to them. So used to men manipulating them and treating them badly. Now, of course, what's going on, let's say a woman is used to, you know, being lied and, by, to by men and treated badly by men she is attracting certain type of men in her life now is that her fault you know is she a bad person because she's attracted a lot of bad men into life? no i mean she's coming from her own wounded place right hurt people hurt people damage people attract damage people into their life like the worst thing about being an under owner is that you attract other owners under owners into your life the worst thing about being a debtor so you attract 
know, other suboptimal people into your life. The worst thing about being an alcoholic, a drug addict, or a sex addict, or love addict, or a shopping addict, or a gambling addict is that, you know, you attract a lot of bad people into your life. So I have tended to attract uh, women into my life who would fulfill my own deeply twisted, sick need for abandonment, <laughs> all right? Women who are very likely to abandon me, women who are likely to have contempt for me, I frequently just find, have found them absolutely irresistible. You know, that's my template that, that you know, I just want to be hurt by, you know, women and let down so that I can, you know, replay the, the, the various abandonments of, of my childhood over and over. I like it. But, um, yeah, I, I just find Kavanaugh. the, like, the political assessments are a source of interest and um, because i don't think there's any mystery like it's 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 really superficial <laughs> it's not it's it's not hard to tell but yeah it does okay. it does come up well so, that yeah. kind of answers my next question because it was going to be about followers of pundits versus followers of gurus are they generally the same even though pundits and gurus have some differences yeah i think that that is an interesting like wrinkle because if you look at like the trigonometry people or or you could say some twitch streamers and those kind of you know influencer types the influencer themselves might not be exactly like a Jordan Peterson style self-help figure, but they often end up with a following who react to them in a really, you know, really, really protective, hugely power socially connected way. And uh, there are things that people can do that cultivate that. And okay, parasocial. So when when I do this show as a supplement to my life, it's you know, it usually works out pretty well. When I you know, do my blogging, my online activities as a supplement to my real life, that that tends to work pretty well. When I substitute this show or my online activities for real relationships or because I'm failing with real relationships because, you know, people are turning their backs on me because I've allowed relationships to fray because people have gotten tired of me. People have you know, come to distrust me or become disgusted with me or they don't like things that I've said or, or written online. And so I'm getting isolated. And then I try to fill that hole in my soul through live streaming or writing blogs or you know seeking attention online. That doesn't tend to work out. So say with talk radio or you know Fox News or uh, whatever your your thing is, right? If if you're if you're enjoying the news. <clears throat> or you enjoy a live stream as a supplement to your life. If you enjoy some talk radio as a supplement to your life, that, that tends to work out really well for people. But I remember when I was basically bedridden for six years in my in my 20s with you know, debilitating chronic fatigue syndrome that turned out to be from you know my lifelong stupid vegetarian diet. Uh, I was so isolated, so lonely that I became incredibly invested in these parasocial relationships, such as with the talk show host Dennis Prager, and I started spending, you know, every dollar I could get my hands on sending Dennis Prager tapes to, to, to people who frequently, you know, didn't want them and just laughed at me and thought I was mad. I mean, I was obviously coming from you know, a pretty sad, bad, deluded, lonely, desperate place where I spent, you know, $1,000 on, on a gypsy to try to restore my relationship with Dennis Prager, which I had blown up through my, you know, online blogging about him. So... Wow, when I come from a place of that sadness, from that you know l lack of meaningful connection with other people, that lack of you know meaningful you know love in my life, then I'm kind of embarrassed about a lot of the things that I've said and and done and, and written online. 
How about the concept of being bored and disgusted with someone? I think that's pretty normal, right? And my, my major thought is don't automatically cut someone out of your life because you're bored and disgusted. There, there are people that I have in my life who frequently bore and occasionally disgust me. And so spending time with friends, hanging out with friends is perhaps one thing that you shouldn't try to optimize because it's just my experience. Like I can be at a social gathering for an hour or two and nothing much happens. But then, you know, the next hour is absolutely intoxicating, right? I can, you know, be, be social for three or four hours. And then, you know, I meet the woman that I end up, you know, dating for, for the next year. So I, I'm a big believer in turning people up or down in your life rather than turning them off. So if you're bored or disgusted with someone, you know, reduce the, their proximity to you, reduce the frequency with which you interact with them, reduce the intensity, and reduce the duration. So, yeah, th there are people that I have in my life and that I, that I see fairly regularly, but I, you know, I don't see them every day. I would not want more of them. So I just, I like the, that knob analogy like turn people up if you want more of them you know more intensity more proximity more frequency more duration turn people down thinking of environments all right yeah so if environments bore you and disgust you uh, particularly as you change all right then choose choose environments that stimulate you that bring out the best in you all right i am a different person in a yoga studio than in a sports bar versus like a gay bar versus Dodger Stadium, versus a synagogue, versus a church, versus a workplace, uh, uh, versus a, a bookstore, uh, the Los Angeles uh, Press Club, you know, writer gatherings, uh, a sewing circle, a writing class, a uh, hiking trail. All right, I'm a different person in Sydney than I am in Los Angeles. So, yeah, I'm a, a big believer in trying to spend as much time as possible in environments that bring out the best in me right there's there's a lot of me that really doesn't need to come out that much and so uh, certain environments bring out a cynical side of me a cruel side of me a mocking side of me an antisocial side of me and so i reduce those uh I, I never did another show like the saturday night massacre of jim go because i didn't like consequences i didn't like you know what it brought out for my life I just, it just didn't sit well with me. And so I haven't uh, repeated that, uh, that atmosphere. And there are things that people can do to which deflate that. And I, I think sometimes that people who are not acting like gurus, they are pundits producing content. They still are kind of twiddling the parasocial knobs to, you know, like maybe just for monetary purposes or ego purposes. But I, I think there are people like Matt Taibbi, for example, I think he's definitely a pundit, but he encourages in his followers uh, a kind of unhealthy devotion and like this view that he's leading them to the truth and that you know the ecosystem that he's in is is like the good guys versus the bad guys so but but i think if you're talking about like what is he he's primarily like a bad okay. political pundit. this brings to mind remember rush limbaugh's followers would call themselves ditto heads but yeah remember <laughs> pinheads isn't there someone no wait that pinhead is what Bill ditto heads. called <laughs> oh okay his, his enemies but who called themselves ditto heads Rush Limbaugh's followers, because they would call in and say, ditto Rush, about whatever he said, they would say ditto. And uh, so they would call themselves ditto heads. It, it just reminds me of what you've described about Matt Taibbi, cultivating a, that kind of... 
those Chris Williamson told me, and he's recommended to very solid people. There's some like how to. So for some people, they can handle applause, right? They can handle uh, dittos, and it doesn't warp them. But most people seem to to get warped by an avalanche of applause, right? It's called audience capture, right? You you so enjoy, you get so high, you get so addicted to the applause that you get from your audience that you become captured by the your audience, and you are less willing to tell them hard truths that they don't want to hear. Set up a podcast course, right? I think it's around about two hundred dollars or something. And a lot of a lot of podcasters, or at least kind of heterodox inclined podcasters, do it, right? And it it gives you these kind of steps to go through to establish your YouTube channel. I think it's I think it's actually about setting up a YouTube channel. Um, but one of the things that it was including was like to use rituals, like. Uh, establish things that you do, right? Like maybe there's a sign on or maybe there's a name for group members or maybe there's like, uh, in the case of like Scott Adams, you have the simultaneous sip, right? Everybody drink the coffee together. And I know that it seems like a stupid thing, but I actually- Grovel at the feet of your muscle master, perhaps? Yeah, sign off. Yeah, well, but so the thing is that in some respect, you can't avoid that happening, right? Like if you have a a long running series, you just get in jokes, right? And you get like kind of references that people won't understand. It happens like in in anything that just like goes on and there's, there's no concrete harm in it. But it's it's also the thing that like it all depends what you're actually doing. And if you're in if you're kind of intentionally creating an insular group dynamic and the dynamics of your broader group are unhealthy, it's like it's a bad thing. But if it's just uh, like I, I think that nobody can produce a show and not end up with there being you know like kind of in jokes or, or that. Yeah. So what kind of shows? What kind of people tend to produce you know toxic communities? Right? People who don't have a lot of love in their life right if there are people you love you don't want to let them down you don't want to disappoint them you don't want to hurt them you don't want to damage them you don't want to horrify them when you needlessly offend people when you needlessly horrify append people you're you're hurting them so that that sense of carrying the people you love with you and not wanting to disappoint or hurt them or, or let them down that's really healthy it's a really beautiful thing to to do on the other hand the people who creating you know these toxic shows all right i i suspect there's not a lot of real world love pumping in their life that kind of stuff so it isn't necessarily nefarious but whenever i see that in this like kind of guideline which was like do these rituals give your followers names right put this down yeah. you're like that feels kind of creepy <laughs> yeah like, it does <laughs> and yet it works like so yeah. you you kind of um you kind of can't avoid it. And uh, Seth mentioned Michael Shermer as like uh, somebody, you know, like that could be interesting, like Lynn Lurie. And I would I would put Shermer as interesting because he's a, to me, he's interesting because he's somebody that teaches people, gives TED Talks about conspiracism, and yet consistently falls <laughs> for conspiracies or seems to have these massive blind spots. So he's interesting to me as just like somebody who has a reputation for being, you know, good on conspiracy theories. But like, for example, he said he has, he doesn't recognize anything conspiratorial about the lab lake um, communities, which is just like, yeah. it's so obvious. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah, I, I, uh, Shermer, and I have all the issues with Shermer, um, but yeah. Yeah, I listened to his podcast for a short period of time and I just, I just couldn't, I couldn't stand it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, <laughs> That's all I'm going to say on a recorded video. <laughs> well, I, I would rather you say these things. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, you know, with, with Shermer, he's just, I, I remember a long time ago, like a, when I was interested in skepticism and stuff, there was a blog which had all the kind of big skeptics on it. I think it was called Skeptic Blog. And it had, you know, Stephen Novella and the guys from the Skeptics Guide to the Universe. And, and Michael Shermer was one of the um, like co-bloggers on it. And Shermer's blogging was invariably 
Like, I would describe it as pilled, but it was kind of libertarian pilled. Like, he mixed in his skepticism with his libertarian politics. And it was always, as a result, like a kind of weird mishmash of, of uh, like, a political spin with a weird, slight skeptical tinge to it. And I, I just was like, why would you... <laughs> Why would you do that? And then, and then, you know, since then he, uh, the like he had the uh, rape allegations against him. But but even as Michael Shermer did. Yeah, maybe it wasn't rape. It oh. might have been just sexual assault. But um, oh, well, wait, even less the... now. I think but... whatever the validity of those accusations, the the fact that they were made public. Yeah. So you might be interested in an article. Will misogyny bring down the atheist movement? So various women accused, you know, Michael Shermer of taking advantage of them. The continuing debate over a murky sexual encounter at a 2008 convention for cheekily anti-establishment skeptics underscores a broader dilemma. How can a progressive, important intellectual community, the atheist community, behave so poorly toward its female peers? Well, here's why the the community (laughs) treats its women so badly, because men basically want to bang. And it usually takes... A traditional society to constrain that if men are not constrained by a traditional society they're going to try to bang all the women that they can type of women who are attracted to an atheist movement are generally not going to be part of a traditional community so they are going to be fair game right they are going to be raw meat for the, the natural predator you know man right so men who are not constrained by their own traditional ties, men are not constrained by a feeling of not wanting to disappoint people, right? Are going to be much more free to be predatory, particularly if they have some power and influence. And when when men have the opportunity, they try to bang as many women as they can, right? Overwhelmingly, the type of men who stay faithful to their wives have few opportunities to cheat. Right? The men who have a lot of opportunities to cheat, like men who work around attractive young women, very rarely stay faithful to their wives. A wife who goes into a workplace every day, right? She's much less likely to stay faithful to her husband than, you know, a housewife who's at home looking after kids. So the more opportunities to, you know, meet other people, develop intense feelings, have intense interactions, you know, find common interests, find solace, you know, start sharing and caring, Right, then you know the more screwing around you're gonna have. Right, this is the next director of the CDC. So I would call probably the person I called most was the Secretary of Health and Human Services in Massachusetts. She worked for a Republican governor just to um, but you know when, when she was like, Are you are you gonna let them have professional um, uh, football? And I was like, Nope. And she's like, Okay, neither are we, neither are we. Uh, <laughs> so um, so uh, you know, it was like conversations like that. So or or I'd be like, So when are you gonna think about lightening up a mess? Or like she's like, next Monday. I'm like, okay, next Monday. <laughs> so I would call yeah, so they may have made the right calls there. I don't, I don't see this as inherently heinous. Uh, I, I think it's worthy of skepticism. All right. So, for for women, like nurturing and safety in general seems to be more important values than they are for men. And sometimes women are right, and sometimes men are right. So I remember walking with this couple, and not everyone to whom I sent Dennis Prager tapes, you know, found him a turnoff. Some people found him incredibly inspiring. They became Orthodox Jews as a result of the, the Dennis Prager tapes I shared with them. And one couple that, that became Orthodox Jews 
but they were walking with me beside this creek and they had uh, three kids and the mother was just hovering all over the kids to make sure they didn't fall in the creek and the father was just lackadaisical like he he was not hovering and and the the mother said to it well you know you don't have to carry a child in your belly for, for nine months all right so that's why i'm hovering that's why i care more that's why i i nurture more all right so do you enjoy this uh, chris cavanaugh discussion here on pundits and gurus so pundits give perspectives on the news of the day but they don't give you wider life advice and they don't try to build a parasocial relationship with you so one of the marks of a guru is that they want to mentor you they want to be your virtual friend they want to be your virtual father they want to be your virtual lover they want to open your heart open your mind and in many cases open your legs as well but uh, the strictly pundit non-guru type pundit is just giving you his perspective on the federal reserve or who are the democrats going to nominate for president and he doesn't give that light wider life advice that uh, someone like uh, dennis prager dishes out all right coming up on shabbat we should probably probably get some torah in us lectures of the world the relationship between halacha and agada that uh, when he uh, taught Mark, music classes Mark from 1950 at uh, in uh, the so he's talking here about Joseph Bear Soloveitchik, a major modern Orthodox rabbi. Revelo Graduate School. But you know the old joke that we all know about, that uh, if we had a Christmas tree, there'd be all sorts of questions. Uh, can you use, does it have to be from a real tree? Uh, how tall does it have to be? Uh, how long do you have to leave it? Is it enough to leave it two days? Or do you have to leave it, uh, how many nights are there? I don't even know how many nights they, they talk about the song. But uh, So that's like a joke. But the Rav actually on page 30, in discussing how um, Halacha always concretizes everything, he says, for example, if having a Christmas tree with the mitzvah, the masechta on it. So halacha means Jewish law. Masechta means a Talmudic tractate. Would first take up how many branches it must have, what kind it must be, how it is to stand. The result would be a series of intellectual laws, a mathematized tree, an atomized tree. The concept of hadar, beauty, and lulav is almost converted in halacha to quantity. So the Rav himself, if you ever mention this and people think you're joking, the Rav himself gives us an example of how Judaism is different than the non-halachic system of Christianity in that, you know, for the Rav, everything, everything arises out of halacha. Halacha. Sometimes I say halacha, halacha. He, Heschel, uh, the Rav is said to have uh, remarked uh, about Heschel. I was reminded of this by listening to a podcast recently on my son's yeshiva, a writer, uh, podcast that Heschel was, he wrote this great book on the Shabbos, the Sabbath. Um, if you haven't read it, it's certainly very inspiring. But the Rav was, is said to have meant, commented about this book, the Sabbath, that it's a great book, but it has nothing to do with uh, Shabbos. Because Shabbos, for the Rav, is the Lama Tess Everything has to be understood out of the halacha. Simply waxing lyrical about the Shabbos doesn't work. So it's the same thing. Uh, so, yeah, Shabbat does not come in for another 20 minutes, guys. So. Enjoy your secular time while you can. Yeah, anything you have, uh, menorah. Menorah is only menorah because of the halakhic uh, discussions about that. I read this over Shabbos, or most of it. The Return to Zion addresses on religious Zionism and American Orthodoxy. I'm actually more interested in the American Orthodoxy element of it because these are talks from the Rav from uh, 1939 through the 50s, translated from the Yiddish. The Yiddish, this just came out. And uh, one day someone's going to write a biography of the Rav that's going to have to encompass all of this, and this is quite important. But uh, relevant to what we were discussing on page 210, the Rav uh, confesses to something <laughs> really interesting. Uh, this is from a talk he gave in December 58 called the Mizrahi and the Jewish Edge, sorry, the Jewish Dance of Eternity. Let me just read to you what he says. When I came to America years ago, I felt the bitterness of loneliness, the need for companionship. I would often cry in private out of despair. When I joined the Mizrahi movement, it was not out of devotion to the cause, but because of the need of companionship. To whom could I attach myself? In the Mizrahi, I found friends who do not check each other's sitsis. In the Yiddish, it says bodek sitsis, or play around with bands, who know how much one can and one must demand. Uh, okay, sitsit. All right, this is what I wear. These are the, the fringes, right? I like you know, the ones that are nice and airy and light. 
but uh, they're a commandment in the Torah to wear fringes, so as to look at them and uh, remind you of doing God's commandments. So when you wear a seat seat, it's you know it's a lot harder to be gross. It's a lot harder to to sin. They're kind of like a in your face reminder of God's commandments. So a little bit like uh, Mormons have holy underwear too, don't they? So checking someone's seat seat means you know checking their level of uh, Jewish observance. How religious are they? How faithful are they to the tradition? Uh, I must say that I found then in the Mizrahi two comrades with whom I found maintained a friendship down to the present day. So the Rav is telling us here that when he first joined the Mizrahi in the early 40s, it wasn't really about Zionism. It wasn't because he concluded that uh, this is the proper approach. He just Right. A lot of reasons people joined a church, joined a synagogue, joined a political, social, cultural, uh, sporting movement, all right, is not ideological. It's just to have you know a social outlet, just to be with friends, right? People will go to synagogue rather than go to ball games or go to bars or go to you know secular activities if their needs are met more at synagogue than in secular activities. People will desert synagogues and churches if their basic needs are met more effectively outside of churches and synagogues. But if you go to church or go to synagogue and you have a burning core of friendships there, right, you're going to keep going back and back and back and you're going to spend a lot of time there if there are people there that you love. So sometimes you can go to a church or you can go to a synagogue or you can go to a mosque and you're inspired, you're fired up, you like the people there, you know, the, it has an effect on you, it makes you finer, kinder, uh, wiser, more adapted for dealing with the hardships of life. If you find such a place, you're going to return again and again and again, even if you're not ideologically you know, on board with all the proclamations of that particular house of worship. This was fed up with uh, Aguda, as he says. Uh, they, they play around with bands, they check each other's sitses. That he didn't want an environment like that. Later, So Aguda, Aguda Yisrael, is a right-of-center Orthodox movement. He becomes the great spokesman of Mizrahi. Remember, he was never opposed to Mizrahi. I already showed you how in the 30s, when he was officially a member of Aguda, he also signed declarations from Mizrahi. Lib Medley says, let your seat seat go free. If they don't come back to you, you aren't halakhic anyway. But I mean, he believed both. He was really part of both of that, those worlds. Um, he could go between both those worlds. But here he tells us that it was the extremism in the Aguda that led him to Mizrahi. And once he's in Mizrahi, then I guess you could say he develops this, uh, uh, these ideas. Uh, yeah, Mark says the comments about Hocus Christmas, uh, uh, that, that, that's the sheer, and I was just reading about it. If there's something else, let me know. Last class, we had a big discussion. Why is it, uh, there, there's a halacha, you have to light Shabbos candles. But there's no bracha in the Gemara. So uh, where do we get this idea? It's from the Goni. So the question was raised. This was a tangent over something else we were speaking about. Uh, why don't we? Uh, why aren't there people who don't uh, say the bracha on Shabbos candles? We know that uh, Sfardim don't say the bracha, not all that, but generally uh, uh, Rosh Chodesh and um, So bracha means blessing. Rosh Chodesh is the the new month. So Judaism has a lunar calendar rather than a solar calendar. Rosh Chodesh. Uh, Rav Avadia says another Sfardim don't say Shasani Kirsono with the bracha. Don't say Koach. So what's? So I didn't really have an answer for that, but I investigated it, and. Uh, it's actually Mahokas and Rishonim. If you look in uh, the tour in uh, Simon. Okay, Rishonim. I think they're like uh, 12th, 12th uh, century, 10th century, uh, 11th to 15th century, right? So if you ever get in trouble in a Jewish halakhic discussion, just always you can bail yourself out just to say, ah, it's a Makalokas Rishonim. That means it's, you know, it's an argument between various. 11th to 15th century leading rabbis. He says, There are those who say you don't make a bracha on the uh, Shabbos candles. I don't know if anyone, I don't know if anyone um, who doesn't, even the Ammonites make the bracha. But I, I have all the sources in this safer I have. It's called Ner Yomtov by Rav Ratzabi. Because the Yemenites don't make a bracha on um, Ner Yomtov candles. 
the difference here, as he explains, is that th there's a chiyuv to light Shabbos candles. So now that we have a chiyuv to light Shabbos candles, already the only institution make a bracha. So. Okay, maybe I should go make a bracha on my Shabbos candles. Take care. Bye-bye.